cool. Well, it's too late for coffee, so I'm going to go grab a Diet Coke for a mild caffeine hit. Wow. And then we can kick in. All right. All right, so kicking off this week's episode, we're going to open up with more reflections. So we're turning Brian's apologies and regrets section into a bit more of a generic proper reflections. I too have regrets. Don't forget that I have regrets as well. <laughs> I think we all have regrets, but these are specifically tied to the podcast. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that. We've got a bit more listener feedback, which Chris is going to throw in. And then as promised last week, somehow I managed to force myself through reading The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek over the course of the last week. And boy, do I have some notes on that book. So look forward to that. Chris is going to be talking about the return of one of our favorite bloggers. I'm going to say my actual favorite blogger, Scott Alexander. There you go, actual favorite blogger, his top notch. And then, of course, we've got the D2 and coffee bed section, so we'll be running into that. So, I think for this week, my personal reflections, regrets, are kind of pretty thin. So, I looked over my notes for last week, especially over the open source part, and there were a couple of little things I wanted to raise in there that I forgot last week. One was touching on a little bit what we talked to around credit credentialism actually in general a big push that i see for open source is in the software jobs market if you look on reddit and you look to people talking about software jobs so much of it is just like getting a good github repo up and running yeah. and having something that you can present for yourself and it kind of feels like that's an extra layer on top of you know going to university on top of studies well i was actually going to make the opposite point in that i feel like software has a less credential focused mindset than accounting or or lawyering or the older jobs in that your career path as an accountant pretty much channels you towards CACPA automatic. Like you're going to struggle to have much of a career as an accountant unless you get one of those two qualifications as an advanced degree. Whereas I've never studied software development and I am now a senior software developer on the strength of just the work that I had done before. I actually don't see doing GitHub and open source projects as credentialism. I see it as, look, I'm actually good at this job. It's not a credential. It's not, I've got someone to put a brain stamp on my head. I can actually do the work. Here's the demonstration. Here's the proof that I could do the work. I'll do the work when you pay me to do it as well. That's fair. Maybe I've been too focused on like the top end FANG employers on that front where I saw it not necessarily as like an additional credential itself, but an extra layer on top of the credentialism. Like you're still expected to have a bachelor's degree or like have properly studied computer science to get into those big firms. Um, yeah, I'm going to push back on that as well. I have actually talked to applying for Google while I was applying for this job and I told them I've never studied software engineering, but I sure am pretty good at coding. And they're like, yeah, we like diversity. If you can show us a portfolio or show us some of the code you want we'll put you through a technical interview and if you can pass the technical interview we're happy to hire you cool i'm glad i'm happy to get pushed back on there and corrected awesome because it means that there's less regrets for next week <laughs> my other point on this specific part of open source and working for free online kind of feels a bit exploitative it does yeah well yeah. Free labor is just free labor. It, just, it reminds me a lot of what I hear about internships. Yeah. And just people getting exploited that way. But at the same time, it's just like how much of it is exploitative because so much of this stuff is just abandonware anyway. So I don't know. It's tough. And like this was my reflection because I tried to look up because I talked a lot about like, I don't know how the Apache project's funded or what, how those get paid. They don't, they don't get paid. The Apache project is just a big bunch of volunteers. There's just millions of lines of code all written by volunteers and maintained by volunteers and updated. And it is all volunteers volunteer work top to bottom as far as I know there are corporate sponsors but I guess they're more like paying for big conferences and stuff it doesn't sound like anyone is paid to work on the open source software that my company deploys yeah right it feels like it could easily become actually properly exploitative and somehow the software industry itself has managed to avoid that because I could easily see a point where it's not just oh yeah make your own projects and demonstrate that to get into our actually having a job interview or whatever it's like no 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 you need to work on these specific projects yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, what's going to be this is the expectation is that you will have worked with this type of structures or database or you will have contributed to this specific Apache project that is the underlying basis of our entire company. Exactly. Or that's how like we're sneakily commoditizing the complement of what we deliver, right? To get into the real weeds of last Yeah, week. yeah. You're not allowed to interview until you've worked on the Apache Cassandra open source project for at least six months. Yeah, you, you could see how the market could move that way in an exploitative fashion. Hopefully there's just enough nice people and enough people who are against exploitation in the software industry that it stays that way. 
and enough competition, right? Competition in the labor market specific. Competition in the labor market. I think that Google and Facebook and Netflix hire just every competent developer they can. Like I say, my company is hiring developers overseas because we can't get enough of them in Australia. So it's an in-demand industry still. I don't know whether it'll always be that way, but it really is at the moment. And that probably makes the exploitation difficult because it's like, well, I can't apply for a job at this place until I've worked six months for free. But this guy will hire me and give me a three-month sign-on bonus. Nice. And then the other point that I missed out of last week was reflecting on the benefits of these kind of crowdsourced opportunities, not necessarily open source in and of itself, but kind of what we've realized on the internet over the last 10 years, which was really the benefits of user reviews getting realized on Amazon, even though that got exploited a bit, but still adds a lot of consumer value. Same thing with Uber and having drivers you can trust. Same thing with Airbnbs and not accidentally staying at the place in New Jersey that is in a really rough neighborhood as I almost did. (laughs) So thank you, person who reviewed that place. Those things really added a lot of value, but that's all a decade old. That news was when I was just getting out of university and I've been out of university for a while now. And I was hoping that Chris might have some insights into further progress on that front. Is there anything really happening on Internet of Things? Because you worked on ESPY a lot, right? So that's kind of open source stuff. Yeah, I've worked on Internet of Things. And yes, it was an open source project to port Arduino C code-ish to the core of the Arduino, of the uh, ESP8266, which is a Wi-Fi chip, which if anyone's familiar with my light clock project is the underpinnings of that. And the light clock was being developed at the same time as the kernel for this ESP8266. It was designed as a bridge to make other controllers talk to the internet, but it turns out that the amount of computing power you need to implement Wi-Fi security and beamforming and all the stuff that goes into Wi-Fi that I don't understand is like, it's actually just a really capable microcontroller all on its own. And so it doesn't have to attach to anything. It can do a whole lot of stuff built into itself. And yeah, that was all open source work. I know a guy who was trying to monetize it by running a forum and it was a great forum. It really got the community together. And if you had problems, you could talk to people and they would point you to where the kernels may be broken at the moment and where we're going to patch it and help you solve their problems. And he was monetizing, I think just through advertising. I don't really know what his plan was, but he was quite excited about it. Yeah, I don't know. What's the news after the past 10 years? I mean, Uber and Airbnb feel like the latest wave of Silicon Valley to me, which is trust as a service, I guess you would call it, that you can get in a random person's car or stay at a random person's house because you can trust them because there's so many good reviews and user reviews on Amazon fall into that category as well. (sighs) Have we done anything for you lately? I don't know. Tried to overthrow the US government? Can we work that at the feet of big tech? (laughs) Most people seem to want to. Yeah, it just feels like that whole trust as a service was like a huge thing and it was getting played on Freakonomics Radio and it was getting written about and it was all happening. It's not what have you done for me lately, but I just want more hope, man. Yeah, yeah. No, the great stagnation is over. We decided that a couple of episodes ago. But um... Oh, you've just reminded me actually a point that I failed to mention in my regrets from last week, which I don't even think I made a note on. So great stagnation. I had this like a little brainwave while I was out and maybe Tyler's point about great stagnation and all the financialism that was going into it could still be valid. Like all this brain drain that went into Wall Street, like innovations take time to get to market. And the period between 2000 and 2008, we had all these really smart people working in Wall Street banks instead of working on stuff that's kind of paying off right now. Yeah, yeah. From a financialism perspective. Yeah. So like when the 2008 crash happened, we were no longer getting all these super smart grads working for Goldman Sachs or whatever. Right. We were getting them working for Moderna and Pfizer and things like that to set up the new wave of innovations that's happening right now. Yeah, right. Now that banking is not such an attractive sector for a smart young grad to join, they're working at other sectors. I mean, big tech would be one of the large ones that gets it. But yeah, maybe they're working on other things like biotech or pharma or those kind of places and we are getting the innovations. I would say on your point of what have you done for me lately, which is now what I'm reading your point as, it does feel working at my current company that a lot of the distributed software and how to use and take advantage of these gigantic server farms that Amazon is running is pretty nascent still. Like how to spin up and shut down servers on demand. They call it infrastructure as code. So your code knows that you're running out of use or that your users are spiking and they will automatically provision more servers on Amazon so that your app can start scaling wider. That that sort of code is newer than my company and my company is only seven years old. So possibly there's a lot of really boring stuff at the back end that no one really sees or care about. But the idea would be that it would enable the next round of innovation. I can't promise it will, but that's the hope. 
That actually feeds really well into the listening feedback that I wanted to discuss, which is we made the point that once you have Facebook coded for a single phone, it's free and easy to put it on every phone in the world. And one of the listeners' feedback was like, it's really hard to make things work at scale. Trying to take code that works on one phone and make it work on 3 billion phones or whatever Facebook's installed user base is, is actually not as easy as just copy paste it on to all of those phones, which maybe means the next infrastructure as code thing allows a huge number of Facebooks to flower, that making Facebook was this incredible work of technical genius that was very, very hard to replicate at the time. But now that you can just pay for space on Amazon servers and you can use Terraform to provision those servers and you can use Ansible to install what you want on them, all of these are projects that we work with daily at my new job that are really, really new. Some of our code doesn't use it because our code is older than these really, really helpful tools. Now that that whole section is easy and abstracted away, it becomes easier and easier to do what I say. And once code's running on one phone, it's running on every phone like that. Yeah, nice. That's really good feedback. Which could drive a whole lot more competition in big tech. Big tech is maybe not so big anymore because their primary advantage of we're the only people who can operate at this scale because it's incredibly complicated. It's like, no, it's not. We just download this Apache project and we say go. That's super interesting. So to reference a project that I'm working on on the side, it's a consideration I have, especially from a data science lens, because it's very easy to spin up an instance of Jupyter and get an app working locally on your computer. But to make that interactable for someone else, that's like full stack development. And there's a whole different level of skills required in full stack versus just pulling together a model in data science. It's a lot of work. This is another reflection on the difference between R and Python for data science, because those two languages are in close competition, maybe not so close anymore, is that Python was always the choice of software developers and R was always the choice of scientists who could code. And my opinion was that the reason that Python then won is because the software developers were used to making a bunch of useful libraries and then made a bunch of useful libraries and then Python just has all these useful bits of other people's code that you can steal and do everything. So Python seems to be staying ahead. But what I will say for R is that R Shiny, while it's sort of still full stack development, it is nowhere near as much of a pain as setting up a Flask server in Python. Like it is designed to do exactly what you want, which is I've done all this analysis in R and I want some other people to be able to play with it. It makes that as easy as possible, which is still hard, but I did find that much easier than developing in Python, which is literally full stack development, which is a lot of work. Yeah, cool. That's super interesting. I'll have to keep that in mind. Yeah, all you got to do is just learn an entire new language if you want to do this analysis. I'm not sure I recommend that. I learned R once upon a time. It was kind of a pain. It was fun how it had little arrows when you were assigning things I instead like of eagles. That. I think that's better. I think that is the superior assignment symbol. So speaking of listener feedback, if you're interested in talking to us, please, if you know Brian or I in person, feel free to just drop us a line on Facebook or give us a call or, you know, harass us at the next board games night. But if you don't know us in person or would just like to feedback to the podcast more generally, avexpodcast.gmail.com is the place that you can do that. We're very interested in your questions and feedback and are happy to discuss any interesting points we can get. So I'm going to kick into my review of Simon Sinek's The Infinite Game. So a little bit of background on Simon Sinek. If you've been in the professional corporate world or if you've been to a lot of conferences anywhere in the last, you know, 10 years, I'm going to give you a 50-50 chance of you having seen the TED Talk from Simon Sinek on his book, Start With Why. It's a great TED Talk or it was great for the first two times I saw it. And then, you know, the next 10 times I saw it, it wore a little dry. Great point, you know, making sure that you've got the foundations for why teams exist, what you're working towards, even why a business exists overall, and using that as your touchstone to drive the motivation throughout your workforce, get better engagement, get better business results. Really great TED Talk. I haven't read the book, so whatever. Uh, This is kind of a follow-up from 2019, where he's learned a new concept around finite versus infinite games and talking through a few different principles in there. I got recommended this book by a former co-worker who I really like. They're working their way through the audio book of it as they do their commute that barely exists anymore in COVID times. Mm-hmm. So they're getting through it a bit slower than getting I did. Getting through it slowly, I'm sure. And you know, I'm going to be showing my hand here. I'm going to start the review with just my opinion on the book, which was, God, I wanted to like this book. Oh. I really wanted to like this oh. book. I wanted to like it because I like the person who recommended it to me and asked me to get my thoughts on it. First question, are you going to send them this podcast or are you just going to send them a little message saying, ah, oh, great book, thanks for the record. <laughs> I want to talk no further about it. <laughs> I actually sent him a message in the week when I got halfway through it and was like, ooh. Um, I like... Simon Sinek's whole concept of start with why I thought it was a very persuasive TED talk is very charismatic man and he's got some really good points on team leadership that way tying into that whole point of why I like start with why so much is I have seen the downside of an absence of purpose 
working in dysfunctional businesses, working in dysfunctional teams where there is clear lack of purpose and you kind of feel lost there and it's very disheartening and you see it in modern society like people lament about a lack of purpose all the time. I mean, this is a book we may talk about in the future but David Graeber's bullshit jobs seems like the entirety of this, right? Is that you have work a job and you potentially get paid quite well at that job but you're like, I don't know why I'm here or what I'm meant to do. I'm very prestigious and I get paid a lot of money but nothing I seem to do matters. That can be surprisingly soul destroying. You would think that that would be great. It's like, I get paid to do nothing. So I get all this money and I don't have to do anything, but it actually sucks quite a lot. Yeah, I 100% agree there. David Graeber, I have my problems with him as an author, but that book is just so enlightening from a perspective of learning from someone you disagree with on why purpose is important. So I'm, I'm a big believer in that whole concept, but this book just, whew, after the first chapter, it just, it turned me, turned me off. So what's it about? I don't know what this book's about yet. So I'm going to open up and just give an overview of what the book is and then talk through my disagreement points on it. So it's all around kind of applying this concept of finite versus infinite games that Simon Sinek's picked up on over the years and sort of saying, okay, a finite game is a game that has defined rules. There are known players, the rules are fixed, and there's an agreed upon objective that when that objective is reached, the game is over. Right. So like a literal game. So like soccer or one of the board games that we play or... Exactly. There's a clear end state and there's a clear winner, clear loser, or people play and you know the rules. In contrast, infinite games are played by known and unknown players. There's no exact or agreed upon rules. There might be conventions, they might be laws, but they can always be bent or broken. Players will sub in and out over time. And really the main point of infinite games is to just keep on playing them. So they don't have an end goal other than to just keep the game perpetuating itself. So other than life, what's an example of one of these? Or is it just we're calling life a game now and we have to just make really clear the differences? So that's a really great point because that was one of my frustrations with the book. A good example that he lays out in the first chapter is like a marriage. There's no winning your marriage, Mm. right? There is succeeding in your marriage and perpetuating the existence of the marriage and making sure that you're getting the best out of it. Yeah. I don't know where I heard this or whether I made it up. One of my favorite quotes that helped me in my relationship was, yeah, you can't win a relationship. You can only lose it. That's a great point. Gee, I wish he put that in the book. That's super great. Yeah, so the quote here from the book is, in an infinite game, the primary objective is to keep playing, to perpetuate the game. And similarly, he makes the point that there's no actually winning in your career. You may do better than others for sure, and there's pinnacles to be reached, but it's not actually winning. What you want to do is have a purpose that you continue working through. I consider you to be winning at your career. (laughs) If only we weren't like so long past Charlie Sheen memes. (laughs) Um, cool. So that's kind of the fundamental principles of it. And what he brings to the table is with this mindset of business being a clear, infinite game, how can leaders play into that more effectively? And where are things going wrong? Where leaders are instead seeing their businesses as something in a competition that is to be won, where they have a clear end state that they can be like, we're the best. And a best is only a fleeting moment in time. Okay, I gotcha. He's got this example in there, which is if you look at Garmin's corporate website, their basic whole purpose that they state is we want to be the best or we're going to be the best in delivering whatever these services are is that really a sustainable goal is that something that's really gonna it's hard they are often the best though so to be fair maybe they're they're doing it for a bit yeah they're doing well i read this and he's ragging on garmin's business and i'm sitting there and i'm wearing my garmin watch and i'm like i feel like garmin actually pivoted pretty well from back when they were uh tom tom and they were the market leaders yeah against tom tom i feel like garmin used to just mean gps and garmin now means very expensive sport watch or bike computer garmin are the best man that's amazing. Good job, Garmin. You've lived up to your entire business either. I think they've actually declined in market size since they were the GPS leaders. But at the same time, heck of a pivot in the last couple of years. And this is where I'm like, well, you don't necessarily need to be playing into your rules here, Simon Sinek, to come out successful. You're using Garmin as a counterexample here. And I'm looking at my wrist and thinking they're doing a pretty good job. They're doing a real good job. I've got a Garmin on my bike. So in this, Cynic lays out that any leader who wants to adopt an infinite mindset must follow five essential practices. He's doing this as a great standard business teaching tool, perfectly laying it out to be a seminar, gives you know your five dot points, and then in the book lays out the actual key meanings behind those five dot points, and then also layers on top of that a bunch of anecdotes, pretty standard business book stuff. In this particular case, his five key points to be an effective leader with an infinite mindset is you've got to advance a just cause as your business. You've got to be building trusting teams. You have to study your worthy rivals, prepare for existential flexibility and demonstrate the courage to lead. Wow, existential flexibility. Yeah, there's some weird stuff in here. I'm not going to go through each of these points. I'm going to just go into my issues with the book in general because it kind of gets to my problems with why I didn't connect with these points. So in laying all that out, it's like, okay, yep, I see your point. You're laying out an argument here. You're laying it out in a way that can be done in a business seminar. But maybe I've just been spending too much time 
actively debating topics with you, Chris, but it no longer holds enough water for me to, for people to be throwing anecdotes at me yep. as their evidence. It all just feels so cherry-picked and can easily be countered with counter-anecdotes. It's tricky because anecdotes are much more compelling and much easier to remember. So I think I would get bored of reading a book that is entirely stats. In fact, I would call that book The Case Against Education by Brian Kaplan and I got <laughs> bored of it and stopped reading it. Totally. There's a role for case studies. I totally agree with that. But when it felt like all of his evidence was the case studies without any proper stats to back it up or with tedious stats, he lays out, oh, the argument for infinite versus finite mindsets is back in the 50s before Milton Friedman, we had all these businesses that had infinite mindsets because they were really driven by their purpose or whatever, supposedly. I'm pretty dubious because he calls out like three examples and I'm like, well, I can call out three examples right now. He lays that out and the key stat that he puts behind it is the average age of a business back in the 1950s or a listed business was 50 years and the average age of a listed business right now is 20 years. Wow. Okay, cool. You gave me a stat, but I can come up with three different reasons why that could not be because of a loss of purpose. Yeah. It could just be that we've got a whole bunch of new market entrants. Yeah. You can definitely drop the age by having a bunch of new businesses getting listed. Or it could say that all those old businesses that had their purpose, they all just got outcompeted by new businesses that have no sense of purpose other than we're going to make a bunch of money. This was a key thing. Why? Why would a business, if it's so great to be properly playing the infinite game with a clear just cause, why would it be outcompeted by those businesses that don't have it? Yeah, that feels like it gives it runs exactly the opposite to what the point he's trying to make. Yep. And the only point that he backs that whole argument up with is, well, Wall Street bought into the whole concept of shareholder value brought forward by Milton Friedman in the 1960s, I'm guessing it was Milton Friedman. And since they control so much capital flows, they could actually distort the market to act in inefficient ways by actually being able to direct their equity flows and debt funding to businesses that could properly show direct measures of earnings per share and those kind of things that don't actually show these kind of softer measures that Cinex talking to okay. around effective leadership, effective trust, that kind of stuff. And it feels like a pretty big stretch. Yep, sounds like a pretty big stretch as you're laying it out for me. Yeah, uh, maybe I'm not the right person. But like I say, I came into reading this book with a bias to wanting to like it. So yeah, mm. it's tough. It's tough to screw that up. Yeah, he basically spends a whole chapter fighting against Milton Friedman. So chapter four, there's part of me who is a real big analyst. And it's pretty much the same problems that I have with David Graeber, which is you're accusing your opponent of having this lack of imagination, but you yourself are unable to imagine yourself as an analyst. Right. You're just seeing the world through these soft emotional lenses, which are a very good thing to have. I'm not going to dispute being an emotional person is a good thing. But you are unable to put yourself in the shoes of someone who can frame the world in terms of mathematics, in terms of measures and metrics. And you see those things as cold when they're not necessarily that way. And for me, as a person who sees the world that way, or I gain so much more appreciation for the world when I can build a mental model to match the way the world works. It's just very alienating. It's tricky. Obviously, we're both analytical people. That's what the purpose of this friggin' podcast is. But <laughs> it is frustrating to me that when you are an analytical person, you often get accused of being cold and not caring about people. When a lot of the analytical people that I read, look at the effect of altruism for like the perfect example, is a bunch of analytic people who really want to think hard about what is the best thing we can do with our money to help people. We can mathematically optimize for lives saved per dollar donated. And that's what they're trying to do. So it is a cold way of thinking, but the conflating of a cold way of thinking with being a cold person who only cares about money or only cares about power or whatever just seems to be so assumed for anyone who's going to analyze things and like work out the value of a life or work out these things must be a terrible cold person and not really care about anything but money. Whereas what they're actually trying to do is save more lives for the same resource input. Can we save more lives? A lot of money goes to charity every year and some of it seems wasted and you can say, oh, you're cold. You just don't want to buy a, I don't know, I'm going to get an example and then we're going to have to play the you're a horrible person Chris thing from the first episode but like (laughs) ah you're a horrible person little Timmy just wants to walk again so how could you deny him his five million dollar exoskeleton and it's like I can deny him his five million dollar exoskeleton because I could literally save 50,000 lives in Thailand for that price why are those 50,000 lives worse less than Timmy wanted walking in his exoskeleton yeah and it's not that I don't feel bad for Timmy that still breaks my heart in a way but 
hearts are getting broken, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does break my heart. Any any tragedy is heartbreaking, as we have mentioned before. I have had my own experience with tragedy, and it influences the way I think and feel. But the analytical person in me can still have my heart broken by children in developing nations dying because they, you know, get diarrheal and they can't get enough fluids to top themselves up. Like it's an easy thing to treat if you're in the Western world and have modern medicine. Like ridiculously easy, and children are dying of it. Yeah. So I'm going to wind us back from getting a bit too dark. Back to the book. I think we're like pretty clearly demonstrating that while we are analytical people, we are caring people at the same time. You think that, but we're going to get feedback saying we're cold people. I guarantee it. Well, I'm not feeling too cold in this room. God damn. (laughs) Yeah, it's somewhere in Australia right now. So that was like one of my frustrations is like this lack of ability to put yourself in the mind of someone who's analytical. Like I get it. It's hard. I could not possibly put my mind in someone who is, you know, writing on genderqueer theory or something like that. Yep. I can talk to people about it and I can sympathize, but I'm never going to perfectly be able to put my mind into it. And frankly, if I read some of their writings, I might have an emotional reaction to them, which is not worth engaging and not worth putting out there, right? Yep. But at the same time, I am wise enough to know that I need to get past that emotional reaction and still engage with the people around. Or just let live, I think. Yeah, totally. So one of the other things, I'm a guy who likes to read the citations and go into the index just to get a bit of a feel for things. If something piques my interest, I want to read the background for it because often I'll learn completely new things that way. And all of his citations were from CNBC and the BBC and Harvard Business Review. And it's like, okay, I'm not your audience. And I only realized that at the end when I finally got to the index, but those citations are not going to do it for me, man. I need some proper stuff. And this probably speaks to why I was not able to get good statistics or good presentations of articles beyond, you know, a couple of case studies. Because he didn't read any to write the book. Yeah, pretty much. He sort of sat in a few taxis with some people and read some articles on a plane. It's kind of the impression I came away. Sorry, Simon, if somehow you're listening to this, I'd love to talk to you someday. Please reach out. You can interview you on the podcast. And then to a few points that you kind of raised there in the listener feedback and where we were talking about what have you done for us lately, he specifically calls out in like chapter two or chapter three when he's talking about, you know, what's a good just cause. He gives this quote, a just cause really needs to have a compelling purpose, something along the lines of we do the stuff you don't want to so you can focus on what you love is not a just cause. And I'm like, dude, that is so much of what the modern economy relies on. If you want the whole world to not be unlocking value for each other, it's not always going to be compelling. Yeah. It still adds an incredible amount of value out there and we can empower so many people, but you still just cannot tell a nice story that way of doing something for someone else because we've just atomized the economy. I quite like one of my favorite lines from Matt Levine where Facebook does seem to have that big purpose of whatever they are, the connecting the world. We just want to connect the whole world together. And Matt Levine's like, this sort of sort of a little bit scary. If it's just, we're trying to drive shareholder value or we're trying to make a bunch of money, you're not going to be putting in 20 hours a week working the hell out of your code to try to really drive it. It's just like, yeah, shareholder profits, whatever. I don't really care. I'll do my 40 hours a week and then I'm done. Whereas when you do have this higher purpose that in Facebook's instance leads to some terrible things, you know, genocides being conducted through Facebook and problems with the US electoral system. When you have this higher goal, it may not be a good goal. Money's just sort of general and fungible and interchangeable and not that exciting. So if you're working towards making money, there's only so much level of fanatical effort that you're going to put in. Whereas when you're working towards the fanatical goals, you can get a bunch of really smart, really dedicated people working on terrible things. Yeah. Glad you brought up Facebook because it's one of the big criticisms that Cynic has in here is an example of a company that kind of had a purpose, then lost it. They had this very nice purpose of connecting people and it doesn't feel like they've gone that way anymore. And they do all these terrible ethical things. And it's like, well, they're still meeting their purpose of connecting people. They've empowered a lot of people. It just turns out that some people are jerks. Yeah. And some people like to listen to jerks and there's some really charismatic, compelling jerks out there. And when you connect them to a bunch of people, they get a lot of power, but they're still jerks. Yeah. He has a point around Facebook. Oh, maybe, you know, if they were willing to do the existential flex and pivot away from being so dependent on advertising, then they wouldn't have to exploit our precious, precious data. And that would make them so much more ethical. And I'm like, well, what's the pivot there, man? Like, what do you do instead of actually funding yourself through advertising? Advertising is, you worked in advertising, Cynic. Surely you can understand what value it brings to the world. Certainly some of it can be pretty cynical. And as a guy who admitted to last podcast, liking a lot of punk rock, I can be pretty cynical on advertising, but there is still some value there in discovery. I would never have gone and seen Henry Rollins in Australia if Facebook didn't tell me back in 2012 that he was touring. So knowing your actual target audience through knowing their data and being able to advertise to them without selling that data, just selling the ability to advertise to specific demographics. 
I don't know that it really requires a pivot there. Yeah, I'm back and forth on internet advertising. Sometimes I block it all. Obviously, you can't block it through Facebook because it's also from the same servers. But like, what's the pivot? We charge 10 bucks a month for Facebook. I guarantee you, within five seconds of that announcement, 20 VCs have launched their Facebook committed competitors that will be free and promise to always be guaranteed. Could Facebook do it now that they're so totally entrenched? It's not impossible. Would I personally prefer that service if they got rid of clickbait and advertising and just charged me 10 bucks to see what my friends are up to? I actually probably would, but I just don't see it working. I'm pretty sure we're all going to find a free version that's off to the side somewhere and then eventually ads are going to infiltrate it. You do make me think of a thing. Maybe there are options on the table, which would be kind of like YouTube Red or Premium or whatever they had. Could I just pay a monthly fee? And Facebook, you don't show me the stupid ads anymore. Yeah, okay. So it's free for most, but the advertisers get the people. It's like free to play software. Yeah, yeah. So it's free to sign up and you get ads. And if you're sick of the ads, you could just pay to make them go away. I might pay for that. I'm not sure. I'm not on Facebook a whole lot. Yeah, maybe the options there. And maybe that's what flexible thinking takes. I'm sure there's a lot of smart people at Facebook. I don't actually use the service other than for Messenger, but they probably thought of this. There might be a reason for it. They might not. I don't know. They're very good at advertising. They are extremely good at advertising. And the final kind of point here that I wanted to really push back on is the overall fundamental premise of, is it appropriate to be just applying this infinite game framework to business? Companies themselves back in the 1600s predominantly were fixed objective equity funding vehicles. You would fund a ship to go to the East Indies and get some stock and then you'd get a share of the profits when they arrived back and that was the end of the business. We've evolved past that, but there's not to say that having a fixed objective is antithetical to business operations, especially like in mining. Obviously, Australian, going to be a bit twisted by the mining industry, but there's only finite resources that you can dig out of a specific mine and figuring out the best way to deliver that, there's value there. Yeah, this may be a cynical accounting ploy, but every movie is set up as a separate business, which is the business to make this movie, and then we sell this movie, and then the business is profitable and it's wound up. On a more real example, I believe that a lot of VC funds Silicon Valley startups on the basis that they're going to grow and they're going to have an exit. And an exit is often the company gets bought by one of the big fang companies, uh, and the company no longer exists. So the objective is get big enough to get a service useful enough for Google to pay a huge amount of money for it. It's a finite time, it's a 10-year horizon sort of thing. Just build some software, hire some engineers, Sell them to Google. 10 years in, out, yeah. And that's saying it can be done. I'm not going to disagree with old Simon Sinek and say there probably should be a pretty good reason for that service to exist. And you want to know that in your business to properly motivate people and it'll help a lot. That's kind of my view on it. And he makes this whole point around, oh, Kodak, blah, blah, blah. I hate the Kodak business example in general because frankly, they would have been disrupted by phones. I mean, Nikon and Fujifilm both have around 30,000 employees. Kodak currently has 6,000. Kodak used to have 130,000 employees. So was like, oh, Kodak, they went from 130,000 employees to 6,000. It's so awful. Well, guess what? Those 124,000 missing employees would still not be working at Kodak. You'd just have a bunch of software engineers working there instead if they managed to pivot. All those people who used to be chemical engineers and that kind of stuff, they're still not working there. So what does it matter if it's Kodak who's employing them or if it's Nikon or if it's Facebook or Instagram? Well, I don't know. If you believe in creative disruption, which is a Silicon Valley capitalist kind of ethos, it's like, it's good that the old company that had a monopoly on film is gone away because it's allowed a bunch more things to flourish that were cheaper and easy. Like now we get Instagram and we get iPhones that would have really nice cameras built into them. Isn't that better? And fewer people are required to get this better service for us? Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Maybe he's got an argument for it, but he kind of just takes it for granted. And I would love to see that argument. Maybe it's just, it's less disruptive to the employees' lives and we want to make the general population's lives happier. I don't know. I mean, definitely it's disruptive getting made redundant, but I don't know whether you want stagnation and stability because then you just do the same thing all the time. If you want new things to happen, people got to get fired because their skills aren't useful anymore and they've got to learn new skills and be useful in business. Yeah. So where I wanted to come away from this, so there's all my problems with it. But what made me think so much in reading this book was coming up with my own arguments for Simon Sinek and saying, okay, well, here's the points that you raise. Here's what I think you missed. And here's what I would say to fill in those points that you missed. Why should I think about the importance of the long term in my business? Why should I think about it longer and longer and longer? And if you look at equity markets these days, from an analyst perspective, real rates of return are dropping. We've got massive decreases in the risk-free rate. We're seeing massive increases in the cost of capital itself, like the base cost of capital, which is why everyone's seeing capital gains currently. We're still seeing some good dividends, but you know, actual earnings. What is it? The earnings to price ratio price to earnings don't tell me because i'll just get scared and sell all my shares yeah it's ridiculously high and that's kind of indicative of a lower discount rate a lower discount rate 
makes your future cash flows more important. So if I'm earning returns, my opportunity cost of capital is 10% a year. In 50 years, who cares what I make? If my discount rate is 0.5%, in 50 years, I still care. (laughs) It's pretty close to equivalent to today. So setting yourself up for longevity these days is super important. That is a point that Simon Sinek can take to the heads of PwC, the heads of investment capital banks, to BlackRock or wherever and be like, this is why you should be setting yourself up with a purpose that has longevity that you can pass on to your people. You get all these extra bits of benefits of like working in an effective team and increased productivity and frankly, you're just decreasing overall world suck by having a nice working environment and having a purpose. But at the same time, there are tangible gains and there's a reason that this message is becoming more important today than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, okay. But he doesn't make that point. You have to make that point for him. Yeah, but I'm, I'm throwing him a bone here, man. Come on. I can't just spend the whole segment ragging on him. I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> so the other point I wanted to make on Cynic, on his behalf, looking into this whole book. Maybe he's got a bit of the spirit right when it comes to something went wrong when we started prioritizing shareholder value. It's not necessarily that this whole analyst framework is wrong, yep. but maybe there's a ring of truth to it. Something along the lines of Goodhart's law, right? Where once you actually define a metric and set it as a target and actually have earnings per share or the actual share value embedded in someone's salary base, it becomes a target. Once a measure becomes a target, it becomes an ineffective measure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's a target, it's no longer measuring the underlying thing that you thought was helping it to be effective, where you're trying to increase economic growth, which increases shareholders, which increases the share price. You're now just making a number go up and down. And there's all sorts of tricks you can do that with short selling or with, I don't know, probably accounting tricks that only unethical accountants and not you would ever do. Definitely. Um, those kind of things. The other parallel is maybe economic growth, et cetera, is the wrong thing we're focusing on. Is it Ben Thompson that likes to focus on the difference in the number of times the word democracy comes up in the congressional log versus the number of times the words the economy comes up? up in the congressional log and at the start of America they were all about democracy, democracy, we have to protect the democracy, the democracy is the most thing we have to make sure all the democracy is democratic and now it's like the economy, the economy, we have to protect jobs in the economy, we have to grow the economy and like maybe we up in there and that if you protect democracy hard enough the economy flows out of that but the reverse is not true if you try to just maximize economic growth then democracy does not flow out of that I don't know how unhealthy the democracy is, people like to complain about it whenever the opposing party is in power and when as soon as they're in power they're like nah democracy is great Yeah, so for those who don't know, Goodhart's Law, probably the most common example of it is from the Soviet Union, where they had a nail factory there, and they were measured and assessed based on the weight of output, so X amount of tons of nails. And what they decided to do then was it was really easy for them to make ridiculously large nails, and then they just made ridiculously large nails. (laughs) And it's not actually what you want to get out, but because you could measure it, it ends up resulting in really weird and perverse outcomes. I thought the story continued. They're like, well, we don't want that, so can you measure is the number of nails you put out. And then all they did was put out like tiny little pins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Once you actually attach a measure to it, you might have the best ideas in mind for it. And analytic thinkers like Chris and myself, we can see the logic for that and work towards it. But not everyone in the world is able to see the logic behind these measures and they just want to get their numbers. And they just oh, want well, to get Also, the, the incentives results. may not be there. Like you and I might yeah. be smart enough to be like, no, what the Soviet Union really wants is a big nail factory. But what gets me promotions is huge nails. So yeah. the system is set up for me to make all the calls to make huge nails. Or maybe we're not that overt about it, but when I'm saving two projects by my underlings and this project is going to make 10 tons of nails that are actually useful and this project's going to make 11 tons of nails that are a little less useful, I'm like, well, I'm being measured on tons, so I guess I am encouraged to choose the 11 tons project. Yeah, and as someone who works in finance, like to get it back to Cinex point around, there's kind of this loss of purpose in businesses and everything's a bit wacky. Maybe there was in the long-term incentive, and I can still see the argument for it, now on the basis of shareholder value if you have a good purpose in your business if you have trust among your employees and good engagement they can deliver more effectively but when you're getting measured on one to three year cycles in your pay plan you're going to be optimizing for the one to three year cycle not necessarily the 10 year cycle yeah and this is a thing that comes up all the time in accounting at least when we're looking at your plan numbers it's like well the cutoff's in december so what accruals can we make because this year's really good or you know a new ceo is coming in so this year is going to be a wash year on that particular stock in the market, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, you get these hockey stick graphs where you've got spend that you should have done throughout the year, nice and even. And then, yeah, in December, because the budget runs out, December is always a huge month where you're just spending all the money to try to get it out. Yeah. So that's kind of my argument for Cynic, where I got really frustrated with him ragging on Milton Friedman all the time about,
about shareholder value concept, which economically, academically, I still think has a bit of value to it. But when you actually get to implementing that and taking recommendations off general analysis, yeah, it can end up with not the optimal outcomes. I do wonder, like, does the fact that we all job hop so much in the modern economy, you and I have had fairly long careers with one company, but a typical thing for people our age would be to change not just jobs, but change companies every 18 months to three years. Some career guides that I've read have said you should be looking for your new job externally within six months of starting a new one because it'll probably take you about a year and then you'll be ready to move on. And does that mean that you are almost incapable of caring about the long term for your company? You want to get a good project to put on your resume. You want to be able to demonstrate some very short term targets that are measurable and then you want to move on because that's how you get your pay rises to move to a different company. I would say maybe it's reverse causality there in that that has become the cultural attitude because we have shifted to shorter term mindsets in the stock market in publicly yeah. traded firms at least that those kind of behaviors can be better catered to in the market if we're getting better at having expected churn within our workforce then that self-reinforces that behavior as like well we don't need to support our workforce and build a good culture because they're just going to be out Oh, yeah, it's interesting. This is a point that one of my friends brought up, I feel like, years and years and years ago. But you have to have good quarters, right? If the stock market is focused on good quarters and you're like, well, I can get better long-term growth by investing for the 10-year time horizon, you are still saying that at some point over that 10-year time horizon, I must have better quarters in order to catch up for the crappy quarters that I have at the start of the investment. And are we just wrong? Are we just dreaming that like, oh, don't worry about this quarter, I'll do it in 10 years' time. And those quarters, you, you, you won't believe how good those quarters are. Don't judge me on my current results. But like, maybe the focus on the short term is like, no, you have to deliver results every time is actually correct. Like where are these 10% growth quarters coming from? Where's the company that actually figured it out and invested that much early? It doesn't seem to happen. Like even the VC funds are having smashing quarters from the beginning. Like you get kicked out of Y Combinator if you don't double every week or something. Yeah, there's some ridiculous things around that. In the book, Cynic actually quotes Jack Welch very derisively. Jack Welch was a headline CEO of GE for many years, did a lot of weird stuff. The firm grew a lot, but then after he left, it all kind of fell to pieces. Uh, so there's there's mixed views on Jack Welch. The Bismarck of the mid-80s financialism conglomerates. Only he's smart enough to hold it all together. And as soon as he hands the reins over, it's like, no, nah, I don't know what the hell's going on here. <laughs> so the quote from Jack Welch is, the long term is just a series of short terms. And that kind of plays into that quarterly cycle view. Okay, yeah, we ran a promotion this time last year. We need to cycle it again this year so this quarter looks good. And if we keep that behavior up and keep managing it quarter by quarter, we can still grow. Whereas, you know, someone like Elon Musk is taking a different view and is losing money hand over fist for many years. And yeah. then only has in the last 12 months actually turned Tesla into a profitable firm, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you're right. We do see it with Elon Musk. I mean, Amazon would be the other obvious example that yeah, was not exactly. profitable for a very long time. Maybe the financialism is fixing its own problem that as long as you can deliver growth you don't have to deliver returns hmm. I suppose you have to have a metric of some kind just promising that I'll be profitable one day doesn't do it but if you can promise it'll be profitable one day by growing ridiculously your revenues every year even if you're growing those revenues unprofitably that's still something so maybe the share market fixed everything and we should all be better capitalists maybe the share market fixed everything maybe Cynic is actually right because both Amazon and Tesla and SpaceX all went with a strong purpose in their companies and had really strong mission and that was what got the support from their shareholders to have rough years. Yeah, yeah. Hmm, there you go. Cynic was right. Capitalism's great. Anyway, with that said, I'm still making these arguments on his behalf. So, <laughs> so he didn't make any of these arguments. You have to back him up for him. But you know, that's good reading, right? You bring yourself to the book as well. You don't just take everything from the book. No, I do. I just become the book while I'm reading it. And then I forget <laughs> all the counterpoints until you point them out to me. Nice. Overall, yeah, sorry. I didn't really like the book. I still liked his TED Talk, but I'm not going to read this again. All right. That's the uh, advice for our listeners. Watch the TED Talk, ignore the book. I have moved house this week and done zero preparation for the podcast. Not that I do much anyway. But big news in the blogs that Chris and Brian reads is that Scott Alexander, or Scott Siskind, as his name turns out to be, is on return after a six-plus-month hiatus with a new blog called Astral Codex 10. So it's a substack because substacks are real cool this year. Everyone's doing substacks. And Scott Alexander is just one of the most thoughtful, funny, and incredibly long writers that I read. And I think literally my favorite person to read. He has an incredibly deep thinking 
thinker. He comes up with ways to look at the world and different problems that I have never heard before and make so much sense once he explains them. And he explains them in a lot of detail with a lot of examples. But with a lot of jokes as well, he brings so much charisma to it that it is a pleasure to read. Absolute pleasure to read. Yeah, if you have a sense of humor like mine or like his or like Brian's, yep, he is just a joy to read because he's just very funny. But it is exciting for him to be back. So I did want to discuss a little bit just a few of the things that I've learned. I only discovered Scott Alexander. I think he's been writing since about 2013 in various different forms, but I only discovered him two years ago, maybe, and have consumed, devoured, like I downloaded an ebook, which was just everything Scott Alexander wrote in the year 2016. And I just read it almost cover to cover. There were a few articles I skipped where he's a psychiatrist. So he goes deep in the weeds on how specific psychiatric drugs work. And I'm sometimes like, uh, I don't care. But his more philosophical worldview posts, I find incredibly valuable. And like a couple of greatest hits, I guess, is his meditations on Moloch, which I would recommend anyone to read, which is basically the idea that a huge number of problems in our world are just versions of the prisoner's dilemma, where if we could cooperate, we could both get a better outcome. But our individual incentives in each of these is always to defect and do the selfish thing. So the literal prisoner's dilemma we have tried to explain before, where two prisoners can snitch on each other. And if neither of them snitches, they'll get one year in jail. If both of them snitch, they'll get five years in jail. But if one snitches on the other, that one will get zero years and the other guy will get 10 years. So in every situation, you're better off snitching because if the other guy doesn't snitch, you'll go free. And if the other guy does snitch, you'll get five years rather than 10 years. So that's always a better thing. But these problems are just literally everywhere that you look and hold back a huge amount of human progress and human flourishing. And the blog post goes through example after example after example after example, hammering it into your head. And I think this is where maybe my thinking has changed to be less politically charged and more both sad and hopeful about the future of humanity in that it's not that things are terrible because there are evil people out there who hate you and want your life to be miserable so that they can extract another bar of gold from the ground or extract another targeted ad from your eyeballs. There's just a lot of really hard problems where when we get set with these weird incentives against each other, our incentives are not to cooperate, but instead to attack each other. And that makes the world worse. And it's not because anyone wants the world to be worse. It's just these situations we find ourselves in that are everywhere. And every time we can find better ways to cooperate, the world gets better. And I think that that has been a huge amount of the human flourishing over the past couple of hundred years is that we're just much better at cooperating. We were in the middle ages when all productivity was land-based. And if you had more land, I had less land. So I was highly incentivized to go to war with you to get your land because there's only so much land that is within horse distance ride, I guess. Whereas now there's so many more positive sum games where I can trade with you and I could trade my Cassandra database software for your delicious dog food and we're both better off and I don't have to go with, to war with you to make you worse off in order to be better off you being alive and productive and happy and helpful actually makes me better but we're not we're not by any means as far as we could be and there's still these problems showing up everywhere yeah I think Scott originally started out as like a philosophy major or something like that and he won a few competitions he brings just such a great ability to see some of these underlying insights and understand different levels of motivations and incentives and be forgiving he's got another thing conflict versus mistake theory which kind of explores this whole dynamic and it's so easy to start your mindset of the world in a dog-eat-dog framework where everything's based on conflict and it's all power games and it's all very Nietzschean and one person's trying to dominate another but Scott comes at things with the mindset of people are doing the best they can where bad things happen more likely than not it is a mistake it is an accident or it's just they've been incentivized the wrong way and if we could just get the system right or if we could be a bit more forgiving and find a way to work forward rather than to work against each other the world could be such a better place yeah it's always tempting to say that your political opponents actually have bad motives rather than disagree on the best way to achieve good motives and I see this literally all the time that my political opponents actively want to hurt poor people people and that that's why they do bad things is because they're bad people who hate poor people and talking to political opponents I don't think that that's their intention at all I think that they who's the econ talk guy um Russ Roberts Russ Roberts he is almost a libertarian maybe he is a libertarian really strong believer in capitalism and economies but his compassion for the poor people and he wants to do things like abolish minimum wage and get rid of a lot of government handouts which sound heartless but there is no doubt in my mind his compassion he is a very strongly religious person he has a real compassion for every human around him. He just happens to believe that the best way to help them is by having free marketplaces to work. Now, I may disagree with him on that, but I don't doubt his sincerity and that he wants to help people. I don't think he 
wants to have a free marketplace hyper-capitalist society because he hates poor people and he just wants them all to starve to death. I think he genuinely believes that the world will be much, much better and there would be much more resources for all of us if we could approach closer to a free market than our current, I don't know, corporatist crony capitalism environment that we find ourselves in. Yeah, there's a lot to be taken there. My God, Scott writes on just such a diversity of topics. Maybe we'll put in the show notes, there's a really good reading list from uh, Alexi Guzzi on some of the top articles, which I've worked my way through half of them and they are just stellar. So really eye-opening stuff. It's an engaging read. They're long reads. Well, not all long reads, but some of them are pretty long reads. I think you've just uh, got a bit of Stockholm Syndrome. Oh, look, it's only 30 pages. What a short blog post. (laughs) Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that. He does some book reviews, which save you the trouble of reading the books at all, which is great. (laughs) Yep, definitely done that. My favorite. Most of my knowledge of Marx comes from a book that was about Marx that Scott then reviewed. (laughs) He read a guy who read Marx and I read Scott. So we're like three levers removed. So if anyone's like, Chris, you don't understand the first thing about communism. I'm like, I feel like I understand some, but I'm willing to concede that point that I may not really. Yeah, it's review in the classical sense of it's kind of a summary overview rather than what's my opinion on this thing, which is great. I strongly recommend reading most of these book reviews. He does inject his opinion in there. He says where he agrees and disagrees with the author, which I think is very valuable because it picks out some clever points. That He does a better job than I did on Simon Sinek. Let's just put it that way. I mean, he's probably one of the smartest writers in the world. So, you know, comparison's the thief of joy, Brian. Let's not go there. Yeah, well, I mean, how much joy do I have to lose? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, no, strongly recommend it. After the six-month gap, I mentioned this to Chris. I was like, maybe I just had a bit of Stockholm Syndrome with him. Like, I'd read enough that I was just, like, overhyping him in my mind. And even with his, like, just couple of return, here's the logistics of what I'm going to be writing about posts. I'm like, nah, this guy's great. Yep. The level of charisma is fantastic. I'm so looking forward to his posts on Substack. Yep. And his first posts on, you know, the news media and how safe is it to share your political opinions, like, like really resonated me in setting up this podcast. I felt real risk coming here and talking to you. I don't think we've talked about anything drastically controversial but just talking about philosophy and economics and politics automatically comes into that and I I genuinely worried before we started putting this out there that I might alienate some of my friends and just by talking about opinions that I have everything. Oh totally like um, our proper episode one on Zvi Machuis I was scared to go and edit it because I was like if I take that step then we're closer to actually releasing it and people will know that I have opinions on coronavirus and god I've done such a good job of hiding that over the last year. (laughs) Yeah and so Scott's first post to expand on that is like the reason he hasn't been right writing for a while is that the New York Times wanted to write an article and they said we have some rule that says we have to publish your full name. He's like, please don't do that. I have a lot of patience because I'm a psychiatrist and I really don't want to know that I am a blogger because I'm meant to be a blank slate that they can just open up to. And they're like, now nah, we're gonna we're gonna write your name. And so he like he deleted his whole blog, which may have been an overreaction. I would say it was an overreaction and created a lot more drama than he had to. But he explains why he did it and you know what the downsides of being able to be unmasked like that and not have quasi anonymous opinions and the news media just being able to go out after you for any reason, the downside that that brought to his life. It is a pretty terrible rough time for him, quite apart from living through COVID during it all. It does sound quite harrowing because he wanted to share his opinions and just having that many people know his opinions on things made his life really difficult. Yeah, so do recommend. We'll probably do some discussions on future articles from Scott, I'm sure, and potentially even discussions on past articles from Scott as they come up into our different feeds because he's really good at linking his old stuff too, which is great. (laughs) He's the best at self-promotion. That's probably why he has such a successful blog as well. Easy to be like, oh, just open that one in a tab Letter. I'll just open that one with that letter. I'm like, I have four hours of reading ahead of me before I'm allowed to close my browser today. <laughs> okay, better get started. And this is why Brian is able to read the great conversation and Chris cannot. Yeah, because all I do is read Scott Alexander obsessively and repeatedly. Also, I subscribe to too many Substacks, so I've got to read all of them as well. As we said, Scott Alexander has returned to writing and he is currently the number one in technology on Substack, which means he has the most subscribers or he makes the most money. I don't really know how you'd be the number one. I really tried to get a firmer metric for this like number subscriber count or something we could bet on like that. So Scott Alexander is one of our favorite authors, but he does seem somewhat niche, I would be fair to say. And I do think that by getting onto Substack, he may blow up. And I wonder what the appetite for his style of writing of highly intellectual, pretty jargony, very funny, but very long, what the appetite for that kind of writing is. So I wonder how long he can hold on to his number one position. Is it just because a bunch of his old readers have all subscribed in a fit of enthusiasm for his return or can he grow that audience into a whole new place? 
It's a tricky one because he's in the technology substack. Am I right there? Yes, I think he's in the technology substack. Which feels like such a stretch for him. He's not technology, he's philosophy yeah, or politics. Yeah, it's I a strange place it. for him to be. I agree. But I guess his big followership showed up when he self imposed, cancelled himself. Got Paul Graham following him. Tim Ferriss, I guess, is a big technology investor at the very least. Yeah. So maybe that's on. it. His followership is tech. a lot in the Silicon Valley tech community follow him, I suppose. So yeah, maybe that's where he said. I really don't know whether he has the broad market appeal to be the number one on a fairly popular site or whether Substack is niche enough that he will find a broad followership or if he's just good enough that he can drive the conversation and everyone starts liking reading really, really long philosophical posts rather than watching, I don't know, the next episode of The Great British Bake Off. Here's where I could see him being disrupted if fiction gets a foothold on Substack. Ooh, that would be interesting. Man, that would be interesting. Yeah, like I'm just thinking to, you know, what's the precedence for this? And you think back to like Charles Dickens, massive following. He started out in kind of mass media, just publishing stories one bit at a time. I could see that definitely as something that would disrupt nonfiction yeah. on a platform like yeah. that. Much broader appeal. Yeah. I don't think he's number one on all of Substack. I think he's featured, but he's number one in technology. Now, the, the bet I want to make is... But even technology like sci-fi, right? Oh. Uh, Oh, yeah. I just think that they would split that up into a separate section, honestly. I don't think you would be putting tech writers against sci-fi authors. All right. So we're just going to assume that there is non-fiction tech writing. Well, you can assume whatever you want. The bet's the bet. And he's going to hold number one for the next 12 months. 12 months. Yeah. Will he or won't he? Or how far will he drop if we want to both assume that he's going to drop? I, I don't know. This is why I want to talk it through with you. This is why I make these bets. It's not because I love betting, although it is interesting. It's just because I like talking through these interesting problems where I don't know in my own mind have a really strong opinion. Well, I'm pretty confident he's not going to still be number one. You think he's not going to be number one in a year? No. Do I think he could be number one in a year? There's so many questions I have about how Substack works. Like maybe Substack won't exist in a year. It barely existed a year ago. So I mean, my big unknown is who the heck is actually a technology writer. Also true, yeah. I can tell you the top five on Substack right now. Sure. Oh, wow, good for him. Man, so technology is a weird category and really seems to take in a lot of investing economics because number one is Astral Codex 10, which is Scott Alexander, who we're talking about. Number two is The Diff, which is a purely investment blog, talks about uh, business and it's not really stock tips, but it does talk about the stories of different businesses and how they are likely to succeed or fail. So it's a very interesting one and I do recommend it as well. Third is Exponential View by Azima Hazar, his guide to the future. Fourth is Platformer by Casey Newton, News at the Intersection of Silicon Valley and Democracy. And fifth is Insight, Smarter Thinking for Puzzles Worth Pondering. Hmm, they all sound interesting. I'm about to subscribe to three more Substacks. <laughs> well, that's nice for you. Here's what my bet is. I don't think any of those are going to be ranking higher than Scott Alexander by the end of the year. Okay. But I also do not think that Scott Alexander is going to be ranked number one. Right. I could take the other side of that bet. All right, there we go. We found something to dig into here. Because I was worried, like, just taking the no side of the bet does seem like the correct, but if you put restrictions on it, then it's feeling a little bit more 50-50. Yeah, you've got to tighten the probability space, right? All right, so let's make this as confusing as possible for our listeners. So <laughs> if any of the top five overtake Scott Alexander within the next year or Scott stays number one absolute for the entire next year, Chris wins a coffee, otherwise Brian gets a coffee. Agreed. Agreed. All right, we found a bet. There we go. We dug into the details with TC something out it was fun yeah no that's that's what I, that's what i like about this section so to follow up last week, just a quick throwaway comment. Uh, McAlb actually followed up his Barb Hell Hardcore Players X speedrun with Barb Hell Softcore Players X speedrun and managed to get it in 7 hours 30 minutes on Softcore versus 7 hours 31 minutes on Hardcore. Right, so the lack of stress that comes from not dying saved him a minute. Because remember, listeners, for those entire 7 hours and 31 minutes, if he had have died at any point through a slip of the finger or a mistake or a lag spike, the whole run's over and he has to start again. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. So yeah, good on him. He's trying to get the players one runs at the minute. One thing that I failed to mention now that I've actually paid attention and I watched a couple of his streams in the last week, they are actually implementing in these runs now a new glitch. So Diablo 2 has been extensively well coded and there are very few glitches unlike the majority of speedruns you will be able to see at Games Done Quick. There's like two key ones that exist that have been identified. One is a thing called swap casting where you swap the animations between different attacks because some things go faster they're faster attacks so you can like swap the animation for like shooting a lightning bolt for shooting an arrow or something like that or shooting an arrow for casting a magic spell because there's different things why would i want to do that so that i can shoot lightning bolts faster so you can either shoot them faster or you can swap physical attacking frames for magic attacking frames because if you get frozen in diablo your physical attacking frames slow down 
but your magic attacking ones don't. So there's a bunch of niche cases. And the main one that sticks out is a run that I'm going to quickly talk about soon, which is for Paladin. One of the actual skills that the Paladin has called Charge makes him do a quick dash across the screen and is really useful for going fast. But it is kind of broken and you get stuck in spots. If you instead swap the animation with something else, it fixes that broken bit of code and you just zoom around the screen and hmm. look really cool. So that's the main use of swap casting. That's one of the glitches. The other one has only been found in the last, I'm going to say, three months, which is a way to skip certain like sub bosses. So the very last boss in the game is a guy called Bale, and he sends out five waves of enemies who you have to kill all of them to then go and fight him. And there's like a frame perfect trick, which Diablo runs at 25 frames per second, which is actually pretty slow for gaming standards, where if you time it just right to run in and out of the room, the game gets tricked into thinking that he sent out this wave, but he never actually spawned any enemies whatsoever. So you skip it. And that's completely new technology in Diablo 2 speedrunning 20 years after the fact. Truly the great stagnation is over. <laughs> truly, truly. So he managed to get like, I don't know, five skips over the course of 15 different bail waves in this run. So that would have saved him, I don't know, like three minutes or something. But it's interesting to see it implemented. The one thing that I'm going to quickly cover off, because we're getting pretty late here, to be perfectly honest with the listeners, is I also watched a world record run. There's a fresh world record from a guy called Bender Meets Fry for the any percent hardcore paladin players one. So he's only playing the normal difficulty. It is an amazing run. Like if you are into Diablo 2 and you actually know all the details, which I assume no one listening to this <laughs> is. Oh my God. It was like, I was out in the shed watching this thing. It was 40 degrees and I was still loving it. I'm like, this is the best brain candy for me ever. Wow. I will say you've convinced at least one listener to check out some speed runs. So awesome. That is Not great Not Diablo 2, but other speed. Well, that's something. I don't know if we ever get any Patreons and people make a request, it would make me very happy to do a casting of this particular speedrun to talk through all the details and mark up my screen and draw on it and show the different really good things in this because it was just, it was a joy to watch. I mean, can I be a Patreon? Can I request that? I'd watch that. <laughs> I genuinely would watch that. I know I make fun of you for the Diablo 2 section because it is ridiculous, but I would genuinely enjoy watching you do that. That sounds like a lot of fun. So yeah, that was it. That's the Diablo news for this week. Mikhail backed up his world record from last week. He's implementing new technologies and Bender's a legend. Excellent. Well, that does bring us on to our final point, which is we now had to pay to bring this podcast to you listeners. It's not very much money. It's not going to put Brian or I under financial stress, but we are paying for hosting and servers and web domains and all of this kind of thing. And we do have a Patreon. So please don't feel any obligation. You won't get anything extra by being one of our Patreons, although we will be much more likely to answer your questions or feature your feedback on the thing. So if you would like to donate on a monthly basis to help cover some of our server costs, you can at probably patreon.com slash affixlive but whatever it is, I'll definitely put it in the show notes. Again, no obligation. Brian and I are not short of a quid. We can just pay for this out of our own wallets, but we're enjoying making it. If you're enjoying listening to it, perhaps we can all share these costs together to make it easy for us to bring it to you. Fantastic. Yep. Appreciate anything that people want to throw our way. We will keep doing this for the medium term, at least. For the medium term as well. That's the other thing that I'm thinking is that if we hit a low spot where one of us gets busy and we get bored and we don't want to do it anymore and it's costing us money, that's probably the time that we pull the trigger. If it's at least cost neutral or we're making a little bit of money, that helps us to persevere and if nothing else I really enjoy having an excuse to talk to Brian every weekend so uh, listeners help me out here (laughs) (laughs) I like how you just assume this is one-sided Chris I'm just doing this for you man wasn't Diet Coke, it's Pepsi Max. Well, I am obviously drinking beer at nine o'clock or whatever we're recording, so. I can't hear you because my cat pulled my headphones out. Don't you talk to me and laugh. I can't hear you. There we go. I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. <laughs> well, I'll never hear this because you'll edit it out, so I have no <laughs> way of proving you wrong.